Welcome to the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Get in on the conversation. Call 1-877-669-1292. Imagine for one second, just for a second, that the October 7th attack never happened. Imagine for a second that there were no mass murders, no genocidal attack, no raping of women, no killings, no raping of dead bodies, no beheading of babies. Imagine that attack just never happened. And then imagine, just for a second, one rocket flying in from Gaza and landing on Israeli civilian heads. How would the world react? Would they say something? Would they be outraged that civilian populations have been attacked? What do you think would happen? Well, of course, the question is rhetorical because we know We know what would happen because we've watched it happen for 17 years. Israel, a sovereign nation, recognized by the world in 1948. Immediately after their recognition and their declaration of independence, attacked by all their neighbors, attacked by everybody, defended themselves successfully, survived the initial attack, And let me remind you that in 1948, the attack on the Jewish population of Israel, the attack on the newly founded state of Israel, the stated goal of that attack was to wipe Israel off the map. The stated goal of that attack was to commit another genocide in 1948 against the Jews who were living in the Middle East. So, well, some could argue, and maybe rightfully so, that that was resistance against the new state of Israel, that that was resistance, that was a a legitimate act of resistance. And that may may be a valid argument, perhaps. But then how do you explain the genocidal attack on the Jews before 1948? In 1929, the majority of the Jews living in the town of Hebron were murdered. They had lived there for centuries side by side with the Arabs in Hebron, living in peace. And then in 1929, the Grand Mufti got up and said that the Jews have to go. And so they were murdered. 129 of them. That was how many people lived in the town of Hebron at the time. And now there are no Jews in Hebron. It always makes me laugh when I hear people accusing Israel of being an apartheid state, you're an apartheid state, they say. These people who are making this accusation have no idea what apartheid was. And why do you think that Israel is singled out as the only apartheid state, assuming that the allegation, which is totally ludicrous, but assuming that the allegation is true, we'll, we'll just make that assumption. It's not, but we'll make the assumption that it is. We'll, we'll, we'll talk in hypothetics at the moment. 
Why do you think Israel is the only state that is singled out as an apartheid state? Where's the apartheid in Israel? Millions of Arabs live within Israeli territory. Arabs serve on the Israeli Supreme Court. Arabs serve in the government. They sit in the Knesset. Where's the apartheid? But how many Jews live in Arab lands? How many Jews live anywhere in the Arab lands? I mean, you can count them on one hand, probably. Maybe you need two. So where's the apartheid? Is it in the Jewish state, which allows Arabs and Jews to co coexist within the borders of, of their state? Or is it in the Arab states that demand that Jews leave or die? It's interesting that the world talks about a two-state solution, which by definition means that Israel has to be a pluralistic state and allow anybody to live there, Arabs, Jews, doesn't matter. But the Arab states, including the, the state of Palestine, as they want to create, is, is okay. It's perfectly okay with the rest of the world that they could say that they don't want one Jew living within their territory. Why is it okay to exclude Jews from Arab land? And why is the Jewish state forced to accept non-Jews into their state? Why the hypocrisy? When we talk about human rights and we talk about the rights, uh, the alienable rights of people, should they not be equal along the entire board? Should not, should not everybody be treated equally? When you want to talk about human rights and you want to be a human rights activist, should you not be advocating for the human rights of everybody? So if an Arab is allowed to live in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv, should a Jew not be allowed to live in Damascus? Or Baghdad? Or any other country, city? In the, in the, in the region? The double standard against Jews has, has existed a very, very long time. And we're getting kind of tired of it. So the Jews decided that they don't want to live amongst the people who don't want them there. So, so we really don't care. Jews really don't care that they're not allowed to live in Riyadh. Jews don't care. But the Jews want to live in their country, peacefully, quietly, without the constant threat of being attacked, of being killed. And so when one rocket comes flying in from Gaza, just one rocket, and I could tell you the count is 10, 000, over 10,000 the last three months have flown in from Gaza, but just one rocket and lands in the civilian population, that is a war crime. When multiple rockets, 10,000 in the last three months, coming from Gaza, that's 10,000 war crimes. And yet the human rights activists, the ones who are screaming and yelling, calling for a ceasefire, haven't said a word. Not a syllable, not a word has been written about the children who have to grow up, who have been growing up for the last 18 years, in bomb shelters. Not a word has been written, not a syllable has been spoken 
about the Jewish children who've had rockets landing on their heads, rockets landing in their streets, hitting their homes, hitting their schools. For 18 years, rockets launched from Gaza. Balloons tainted with poison and all sorts of other things thrown over the border to try to kill as many Jews as possible. Not a word. It seems as though the lives of people who don't live in Israel are much more valuable than the lives of people who do live in Israel. The lives of the perpetrators of the terror are much more valuable than the lives of the terror of the terrorized. Israel moved out of Gaza. They moved every man, woman, child, every body, every animal, every fire hydrant, every street sign, every building in 2006. The Israeli presence in Gaza disappeared. And you don't hear peace activists talk about this. When Israel moved out of Gaza in 2006, they left all sorts of infrastructure, factories and greenhouses. There was a huge business in Gaza. And the Jewish population of Gaza had a huge business growing fruits and vegetables and manufacturing stuff. And they left all the factories and all the greenhouses and all the equipment there. It was sponsored, of course, by, uh, by, by some rich Jewish guys from, uh, from New York and California who paid for it all. They bought them from the farmers and from the manufacturers. And, they, and, and their grand idea was that the people of Gaza, after the Israeli brutal occupation ended, as they called it, the people of Gaza would be able to pick up the pieces, create industry using equipment that was generating billions of dollars worth of sales, and create an industry and make Gaza the Riviera of the Middle East. That was the goal. And the world pledged billions of dollars, and billions of dollars were sent to the ruling party of Gaza, Hamas, with the idea that they would use that to build infrastructure, to allow their people to grow and to be opulent. And the idea behind it is quite simple. It's, it's, it's a simple psychiatric idea that people tend not to be suicidal, tend not to try to commit violence, and become fairly apathetic when they're, when they're opulent, when, when people make money and people are happy. They don't tend to, to, to revolt. They tend to live happily. But that's not what Hamas wanted. Hamas used the billions of dollars and the materials sent to them to build terror tunnels under the border of Israel so they could pop up and kill Jews. All through Gaza, there are tunnels under almost every building in Gaza. So they could pop up anywhere in the, in the, anywhere in the Strip and kill Jews. Their sole purpose from their founding in 1989 was to kill Jews much like the sole purpose of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the Palestinian people. In 1964, when they were founded, their sole goal was to kill Jews, destroy Israel, and murder Jews. Now, I, I understand, I understand when the propaganda machine gets running and 
bodies of babies or dolls that look like bodies of babies are held up. I understand how that triggers emotions in the West. And they understand it clearly. And they use it very well to trigger emotions in the West. It is very, very, very well-oiled, their propaganda machine. And they know how to play it really well. Hamas hides among civilians solely so that those civilians could die and they could point to uh, an ever-rising tally of dead civilians. While Israel is trying to eradicate Hamas, Hamas is trying to eradicate the civilians of Gaza. Hamas leaders have said it clearly, and you can see the interviews, just, just look them up. They're, they're, they're very present, they're very there and very present. Where they're asked, with all the billions and billions and billions of pounds of cement that were sent to Gaza, why are there no bomb shelters for the civilians of Gaza? 2.5 million people living in Gaza and no bomb shelters? And the Gazan Hamas leaders answer quite simply, we consider all the citizens of Gaza, we consider them refugees, we consider them foreigners. They come from Syria, they come from Egypt, they come from Lebanon. And uh, it's the Red Cross's job to protect them. We built the tunnels to protect our fighters. It's not a surprising revelation. But it goes against all Western values. You see, in, in Western culture, we, 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 we value life. In Western culture, we do whatever we can to preserve life. And when we hear about people being killed elsewhere in the world, we're revolted by it. But in Middle Eastern culture, particularly in the, in the extremist Arab culture, they're not so concerned about life. In fact, they, they glorify death. If you die serving Allah, you become a martyr. And you go directly to heaven, the straight path to heaven. So many people stand in line to try to die in service of Allah. Years ago, after Baruch Goldstein walked into a mosque in Hebron and killed worshippers in a mosque, 23 or so worshippers in a mosque, I was on a radio interview. I was interviewed on a radio show. Uh, I was put up against a left-wing Jewish activist. And I thought it would be great for a right-wing Jewish activist and a left-wing Jewish activist to, to stand and be interviewed just after the Baruch Goldstein massacre. So I think that was, what, 1993 or so. And the left-winger that was on, his name was Alan Rose, the late Alan Rose, he, he, was a, he was a British expatriate who worked for the Jewish Federation. His statement was that there is nowhere in Judaism, nowhere in Judaism at all, that allows for somebody to walk into a mosque or walk into anywhere and commit mass murder like that. This is foreign to Judaism. And I, I piped in there, and I said, wait a second, that's not necessarily true. And this applies to all religions. It's not necessarily true. 
if you are raised as a child to believe that your religion calls for you to sacrifice yourself in mercy of God or in, uh, in honor of God, and the way to do that, the way to honor God and the way to sacrifice yourself is to go and to murder other people who are considered the enemy, then that becomes your mission in life. And if your reward for that is eternal life, eternal heaven, then that becomes your mission in life. That becomes your religious mission in life. Religion is taught. It's not inbred. We're not born with religion. We're taught religion. And so when people are taught that this is their religion, this becomes their religion. And so even back then, I was in my teens, even back then, I understood something that most Jews don't understand today. That Islam isn't evil. Judaism isn't evil. There's no evil in religion. There's evil in the way religion is taught to people. And so when someone is taught, whether it be an Islamic extremist or a Jewish extremist, when someone is taught that murder and revenge and murdering for revenge or murdering for your country or murdering for your state or murdering for your religion is the appropriate thing to do and it's what God wants you to do and God will reward you greatly for murdering and for, and for dying for a cause, then that becomes your Judaism and that becomes your Islam. And so when Baruch Goldstein murdered those, those Arabs in the mosque in Hebron, he was following his Judaism, the version of Judaism that was taught to him by his rabbis. So to say that this kind of behavior is alien to Judaism is a misnomer. It's not true. Because everybody has their own Judaism. Everybody has their own relationship with God. As you can imagine, that got me into a lot of trouble, but that's that's the story for another day. So to say that I hate all Arabs, that's not true at all. I just don't like Arabs that want to kill me. To say I want all Arabs to die or let's wipe out Gaza and carpet bomb Gaza and just destroy the whole place, that's not the solution either. Innocent people should not suffer because their leadership are extremists. Now, those innocent people voted in those extremists, and we understand that. And there were many reasons, there were many political reasons behind their voting them in. But that's not the solution. And even if Israel succeeds in this war, even if Israel wipes out every single Hamas member, every single Hamas leader, and destroys the ideology, it will never die. Because ideologies live on in the next generation, the third generation, the fourth generation. They don't die. If you think that Nazism died when Hitler did, then you're out of your mind. Nazism still exists today in Europe, and the undercurrent of Jew hatred still exists today in Europe. Because it was so inbred in the population, so ingrained in the fabric of the population of, of, of both Germany and, and, and of Germany and all the countries that Nazis occupied, so ingrained in their population that their population turned in their friends and their bosses and their and, and, and their and their neighbors, knowing that they're gonna be killed. That doesn't just disappear. That doesn't just vanish. 
takes generations and generations and generations for that to disappear. And now, 75, 80 years later, we're starting to see Germany uh, recover from that ideology. It took 80 years, three generations of, of people, before the ideology finally got watered down enough that the basic Jew hatred may not exist to a large extent in Germany anymore. But it took three generations. So we have to expect the same thing from the people of Gaza. Three generations. So this fight is a never-ending fight. Because as you kill one radical group, another one will rise up. And as you kill the second one, a third one will rise up. So what's the solution? To me, the solution's quite simple. A total separation of populations is the only way for this to work. A Jewish state and an Arab state. Now, I don't care. I don't care if you think that the Jews should be in the 1948 borders, the 1967 borders. It does, it's irrelevant to me. I don't think Israel should give up any land for peace. Land for peace has, has been proven to not work. Take a look at the Oslo Accords. More Jews died as a result of the Oslo Accords than were dying in terrorism before the Oslo Accords. Diplomacy doesn't work. Israel tried diplomacy. <laughs> there were at least nine agreements with the Palestinians, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, at least nine of them, that have failed since the 90s, including some that offered all of Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem as the capital, everything they wanted, and they still said no, because that's not what they want. This is not a land war. Diplomacy would work if it was a land war. But the situation's not a land war. The situation is a religious war. It's a jihad. And it's a jihad not to reclaim Arab land that was stolen from the Jews. There's no occupation. The Arabs of Judea and Samaria live freely. The Arabs of Gaza could have lived freely had they not been oppressed by Hamas. Israel pulled out of there. They weren't occupying Gaza anymore. They could have. And what about Egypt? Egypt has a border with Gaza too. Why is nobody yelling that Egypt's not opening their border and allowing humanitarian aid in from Egypt? The Rafah border is closed. Why, why is nobody yelling about Egypt? Because it's not about humanitarian. It's not about humanitarian aid. It's not about land. It's about the fact that Jews are in the Middle East. It's about destruction, the annihilation of the Jews living in Israel and the destruction of the state of Israel. This is all it's about. And no matter how many diplomatic efforts you make, Arafat was very clear when he said that, uh, that, that these diplomatic efforts were just a ruse to, to, to appease the West and that the fight for the freedom of all of Palestine would continue. He said it clearly. He said it in many different languages. The ruse is that you can't, import, you can't import Western values into the Middle East. And at the end of the day, the only thing that the people of the Middle East understand, the only thing they understand, is that might makes right. If they hit you, you have to hit them back twice as hard. If you do not hit them back twice as hard, they will hit you again and again and again, as a Hamas leader said last week or two weeks ago, that October 7th will happen again and again and again until we can no longer do it. 
You want to eradicate Hamas, you have to hit them really hard. You want to stop attacks on Israel, you have to show that Israel is the strongest nation in the region and that Israel is not going to tolerate these attacks anymore. When Israel flexes its muscles and stands up and says, we are not going to do this and we are not going to accept this anymore, then and only then will the Arabs back down. And even then they probably won't because it's a religious war because they don't believe that Jews should be there at all. So for the West, calling for a ceasefire, for, for the leftists who are, who are gathering in the streets and the pro-Hamas genocidal people who are gathering in the streets and calling for the death of Jews, it's not going to work. Israel is not going to back down this time. There is a point in every conflict where someone does something so heinous that the other side can't accept it anymore. Now, Israel accepted bombs landing on civilian heads for 17 years. They accepted random attacks on Jews, murders of Jews, for 17 years. In fact, they accepted it for more than 17 years since the founding of the state, since before the founding of the state. But a genocidal attack from an organization that has committed itself to murdering Jews anywhere in the world, a genocidal attack like the one that happened on October 7th, was the straw that broke the camel's back. When we say never again, we're not saying that uh, we're going to remember the Holocaust and that we're just going to stop, and that we're just going to uh, stop people and gonna remind people that you know we can't allow this to happen again. When Jews say never again, what we mean is never again will we be put in a position where somebody else could subjugate us and murder us. Never again will we stand down while our brethren are being killed anywhere. Never again will we allow anyone to take us, to butcher us, to shove us in the ovens, to behead us, to rape our women. Never again means something. It's not just a hollow chant that's yelled at rallies. There's a meaning behind it. Never again means that the Jews will not sit back idly. We're not going to be sheep brought to the slaughter. We're not going to sit back and allow ourselves to be murdered. Never again will there be a genocide against the Jewish people. Never again will we sit quietly and idly and allow our brethren to be killed. Never again Will we be quiet? Never again. There was a rally in Ottawa. Thousands of Jews showed up to the rally. But in, in Toronto, in Toronto, Ontario, seven buses didn't show up to pick up Jews to go to the rally. They stood down the buses because they didn't want to support a pro-Israel rally. They're being called out now by the federations of, of Toronto. Because never again are we going to be silent. We are not going to allow the Jew haters to win. We are not going to allow the genocidal murderers to kill us. We are not going to allow our government, the government of, of Justin Trudeau, to equate, morally equate, the actions of Hamas on October 7th to the response of the Israeli army. There is no moral equivalence. If Hamas wants the violence to end, the violence will end tomorrow. 
The conditions were laid out by Israel. Release the hostages, and the violence ends. Hamas has refused to do that, putting more and more Gazans at risk. Never again means that we are going to continue until we free every single hostage in Gaza. Never again means we will continue until the genocidal murderers no longer exist or are no longer able to perpetrate any attack on the Jewish people. Never again. I'm Howie Silberger. Thank you for joining me. I will be back again tomorrow right here on the True Talk Radio Network. Thank you so much. If you want to reach me, Howie at truetalkradio.com. That's Howie at truetalkradio.com. You can always email me. Don't forget, if you missed any part of this podcast, any part of this, you could uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcasting services. And of course, and of course, you can download the True Talk Radio app from your favorite app store. Just look up the True Talk Radio Network app. It's at your favorite app store, iPhone, uh, Android phone, any phone you have. Go to your app store and search for the True Talk Radio Network app, where we have 24 hours of... Uh, 24 hours of, of programming. Till next time, thank you for joining me. I'm Howie Silberger. Have a great one.